like to uh, introduce our speaker. We see the problems that parents are having attempting to rear their children in a world that is literally coming apart like the world we're living in today. How desperately we need uh, guidance, direction, some core values for our families to be able to survive. So we asked Mr. Roseman to come. He's written 17 books, some of them bestsellers, nationally known. His weekly column on child rearing appears in uh, about 200, 250 newspapers across the country. So I think he's probably acknowledged as being the authority, the number one person when it comes to wisdom regarding the rearing of our children. And there's nothing other than our personal salvation, in my opinion, that's as important or more important than this. So I know you will give him good heed today. And uh, this is John Roseman. Well, uh, public speakers do this occasionally. We, we just decide five minutes before we're supposed to get up that we're not going to talk about what we were going to talk about. We're going to talk about something else. I was going to talk about Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. There's a time for everything and a season to every purpose under heaven. But uh, I decided just kind of spontaneously that I was going to save that for October the 19th. So you can look forward to that. Hopefully you will look forward to that. Because it's an interesting, uh, what I do with that is I take Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1 and demonstrate how there are seasons to the raising of children. It does say there is a time for everything and a season to every purpose under heaven. So I'll leave you in suspense uh, with that. The reason I've changed my subject is because I've been thinking this afternoon about some of the things that people said to me this morning. And, and I want to tell you that I probably talk to more parents face-to-face about uh, parenting issues than anybody else in America. And unfortunately, most of the people I talk to are not telling me what a grand experience they're having. Most of the people that I'm talking to are telling me about their problems. And so I decided to tell the story of my journey as a parent. And the reason I'm telling this story is strictly to hold out hope for those people who are, who have found themselves in a dark wood where parenting is concerned. And I hope that this story will be an inspiration to you and will hold out a ray of hope to you. Before I begin, and you'll realize why I say this later on, people sometimes come up to me and say, John, when a child says, I hate you to a parent, is that disrespect? I think my answer surprises people because I say no. That is not disrespect. 
A statement like, you are stupid, is disrespectful. A statement that is disparaging and disrespectful starts with you. The statement, I hate you, starts with I. It's not a statement about you. It's a statement about what is going on inside that child at that moment. And in this regard, I often refer parents to, I believe it's Proverbs 22.15, and if it's not, my apologies. Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child. That's only half of it, but that's the only half that's relevant to our discussion this evening. Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child. It's a powerful word, bound. Bound. Almost like it's imprisoned in there. And I regard outbursts of emotion of that sort on the part of a child as simply verification of what the Bible tells us about children and verification of our purpose in our children's lives. So with that in mind, I was raised in an atheist home, went to college, and distinguished myself by playing in a rock and roll band. And my wife came to hear us play one evening, and she became infatuated with the lead singer who was moving all around the stage and She managed to arrange a meeting the next day, and we were married 10 months later. And by the way, Pastor Bill has, has given me three now very gracious introductions today, but with no correction intended, Pastor Bill has left out my greatest qualification to be up here, and that is that I've been married for 46 years. We have two children and seven grandchildren. And by the way, when people come up to me and say that raising children is the hardest thing I've, they've ever done, I say, well, that's too bad. Staying married for 46 years is the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> and my wife will second that emotion, I'll tell you. So, Eric was born, Eric our first, and I was just entering graduate school, and I'd, you know, I met Willie, got my act together, finished out my last two years of uh, undergraduate school with flying colors, and uh, entered graduate school in 1969, the year that Eric was born. Willie was 19 years old when Eric was born. I had just turned 21. I was going on 13, (laughs) as is true of many men around that time of life. And my head was filled with psychology, just filled with it. And my professors were telling me that I was a wonderful student, the best student that ever had, and my head was just swelling and swelling, and I I became convinced that I was being admitted to a secret society 
within which I was going to be privy to secret knowledge about people, things they didn't even know about themselves. I could read by their body language and their tone of voice and tell things about them that would be surprising even to them. And the long and short of it is I believed thoroughly in psychological theory, thoroughly. And Eric was born, and Willie and I consciously decided we were not going to raise our children the way we ourselves had been raised. Now, this is what was happening in the late 1960s. In the late 1960s, we were becoming a postmodern progressive culture, the hallmark of progressivism is the very dangerous notion that new ideas are better than old ideas. And the hallmark of post-modernity is relativism, that there are no standards, traditions don't matter, and so on and so forth. And you put those two philosophical points of view together, and you've got America in the year 2014. So Willie and I consciously made this decision, and we started reading the books that my professors were recommending, books like Thomas Gordon's Parent Effectiveness Training, and then there was one of his disciples, Dorothy Briggs, a family counselor, and most of these people were from either California or New York. Dorothy Briggs introduced the term self-esteem into our child-rearing vernacular by writing a book called Your Child's Self-Esteem that claimed that self-esteem was the key to a child's success in every area of life. I'll talk more about that on October the 19th as well. And on and on these books went. Thomas Gordon said we should create democratic families How is a child supposed to understand the workings of democracy, he asked, if the lesson doesn't begin at home? Well, nobody seemed to point out to him that in all likelihood, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, none of the great architects of our democracy were raised in democratic families. But we, I, swallowed this stuff hook, line, and sinker. And Willie and I especially attempted to create a democratic family, a family in which children had an equal voice in everything from the time they could talk. And Eric began talking very early, and we would sit there, and Eric, what do you think about this? And he'd be 18 months old, and... Well, we failed miserably at creating democracy. By the time Eric was three years old, we realized we had created tyranny. (laughs) And the tyrant was this tall. Eric ruled our family. And the way that he ruled our family was by throwing tantrums. Anything and anything that did not please him 
he would begin screaming. He wouldn't just scream, though. He would launch himself backwards, oblivious to whatever object was back there, often smacking his head against a piece of furniture, and then he would begin writhing around on the floor. Linda Blair had nothing on Eric. I realize I'm dating myself with these references to movies I make sometimes. And Willie and I mastered what I now call the tantrum dance. Eric would begin throwing a tantrum and we would begin dancing, trying to find a place to stand that would satisfy him, suit him, and we would find a place to stand and he would st- that would suit him and he would stop crying. <gasps> And the more we danced, the more tantrums he threw, and the more tantrums he threw, the more we danced, and on and on and on. And now fast forward to Eric is in the third grade, and Willie and I are just, we're at a loss as to what to do with this child. And I'm looking at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and he's got ADHD, and he's got childhood bipolar disorder, and he's got an ODD in every D there is out there. And in January of 1979, Eric is now 10 years old, we are called in for a conference with his third grade teacher, Mrs. Stewart, and Mrs. Stewart turned out to be an angel in our lives. I never really got to know her, but she was an angel in our lives. She called us in in January, and she said, "Uh, I've called you in to tell you that Eric is not going to be promoted to the fourth grade. He should not have been promoted to the third grade. And I am not going to make the same mistake his second grade teacher made out of the goodness of her heart, but I am not going to make that mistake. And Eric will be with me again next year because I can deal with him. And I'm afraid that the other third grade teachers would have difficulties with him that I will not have. Now, you have to understand that Willie and I were in a great state of denial concerning Eric. We were in a great state of denial. On the one hand, and it was a paradox, because on the one hand, he was driving us crazy at home, but on the other hand, we refused to accept that his problems were as serious as they really were. And here is this woman that I hardly know, and she is talking to me in this plain language and just putting the cards right on the table. And I looked at her and I said, well, what's the problem? (laughs) (laughs) And she looked at me and she said, well, Mr. Rosemond, uh, the problem is twofold. Eric came to me reading a year behind grade level He is now reading a year and a half behind grade level. We're halfway through the year, and he has not made any progress at all. Let me assure you, I know how to teach children to read. I've been teaching children to read for over 20 years, but I cannot teach a child to read or do anything else if he will not pay attention and will not do what he's told. That's problem number one. Problem number two is 
that your child is the worst behaved child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. Now, to put this in perspective, I had already been writing my nationally syndicated newspaper column for three years, (laughs) telling people how to raise children. But you see, all I had been doing those first three years is just regurgitating what I had learned in graduate school. High self-esteem, behavior modification, catch him being good, blah, 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 blah. And uh, here is a snapshot of Eric. The summer before this fateful conference in January of 1979, in other words, in the summer of 1978, during the week of the 4th of July, Our family was in the western mountains of North Carolina in the Nantahala Gorge at the foot of the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. And we were whitewater rafting in the Nantahala River. And we were hiking on the Appalachian Trail. And we were family camping. And we were in the Nantahala Outfitters. And this is the week of July the 4th. And the Outfitters is packed with people. And we are waiting for our name to be called to get in our raft and go up the river and put our raft in the river and come back down the river. And Eric brings me a pair of hiking boots and a box. And he holds the box out and he goes, Dad, I've always wanted hiking boots like this. Will you buy me these hiking boots, Dad? Please, please, I really want these hiking boots, Dad. Please buy them for me, Dad. Please, please, please. And that's the way he was. He just would start talking And he wouldn't stop. It's a diagnostic sign for all all kinds of genetic disturbances. (laughs) And I looked out at the box, and I saw the price on the side, and I said, Eric, Mom and I really, we do, because I knew what was about to happen, or what was likely to happen. And I started stammering, uh, we, we really can't afford that. And he jerked the box back out of my hand and took two steps backward and raised the box above his head. He's nine and a half years old. He smashes the box to the floor of a crowded store screaming at the top of his lungs, you never buy me anything! You buy Amy everything! You never buy me anything! And I look up, and it is like the E.F. Hutton commercial. And I get Eric out of the store as quickly as I can, and I put him in the back seat of the car, and I'm standing there with my fist on the top of the car, (sighs) (sighs) 
My legs are shaking. My heart is pounding. I've broken out in a complete sweat that's drenching my clothes. And I remember this very clearly. I said, Lord, why are you doing this to me? I was an atheist at the time. I am absolutely convinced the Lord was preparing me to be here in Florence, South Carolina tonight. This is the only way I could have been properly prepared to be here tonight. The only way. He is faithful. The coda to the story is that 20 years later, I am speaking in Bryson City, North Carolina, which is 15 miles from where this incident occurred, at Bryson City Elementary School. And, you know, we're 15 miles away, and everything is okay now. And, uh, you know, Eric is married, he's got a child, his wife is lovely, he's got a job, everything is cool. So I tell people the story. And afterwards, I'm standing out at the book sales table, talking, chatting to people, and a woman's sort of hanging back in the background. And when she gets her opportunity to talk, she went, walks up and she says, this is amazing, the Lord brought me here tonight to relieve me of a burden. And I said, how is that? She said, I was in that store that day. (laughs) And I've been praying for your son for 20 years. (laughs) And the Lord brought me here tonight. She said, "Uh, I don't even have children. I just saw a poster advertising the thing, had a free night and decided to come. I've been praying for your son. I didn't know it was your son, but I've been praying for him for 20 years. Now, don't get me wrong, she said. I don't pray for him every night, but every so often in my prayers, I ask the Lord to take care of that child wherever he is, whatever he's doing. Well, you know, she thought he was pushing all of his possessions down the street in a grocery cart in San Francisco or something, (laughs) mumbling at the buildings. Amazing. Yes. The Lord brought her there that evening. There is no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Well, the coda to the meeting in January is this. Willie and I were called back into Mrs. Stewart's for a conference with Mrs. Stewart three months later. This is February, March, April. So about a month and a half before the end of school, we find ourselves once again in Mrs. Stewart's classroom talking to her. And I don't remember her exact words, but here I do remember one word, and the word was miracle. She said, I honestly feel like I've seen a miracle. No one could have convinced me in January that Eric was capable of making the improvement academically and behaviorally that he has made over the last three months. It's truly startling, she said. 
I don't know what you're doing, but keep on doing it. Because if Eric stays on this track, then I will have no justification for holding him back. I will promote him to the fourth grade. He was promoted to the fourth grade. We put him in a summer, you know, uh, program just to kind of keep his skills sharpened over the summer. And he did beautifully from that point on. So the question is, what did you do? Well, Willie and I sat down, and it was Willie. I wish she was here. She was with me in Raleigh yesterday. She really just couldn't be here today. But I wish she was here because this is really all about her. We sat down after that meeting in January, and we started talking. And I remember her saying, and this is almost word for word, you know, you brought home all these fancy childering ideas from school. And I didn't even have one year of college. Who was I to argue with your professors? But it all sounded very weird to me, but I gave in to it. For the same reason, and this is off the subject here, for the same reason America gave in to it. These people had capital letters after their names. And it's just, it's almost inconceivable that people with capital letters after their names don't know what they're talking about. That they don't have a clue. They're just making stuff up. And she said, uh, you know, we consciously decided that we were not going to raise our children the way we ourselves had been raised. And I want to point out to you, we, when we were growing up, never knew a child like Eric. I remember those words specifically. Never knew a child like Eric. A nine-and-a-half, ten-year-old child who was still throwing wild, screaming tantrums when he didn't get his way. And she said, don't you think that if we had taken our lessons from our parents instead of your graduate school professors that we might not be having these problems? And it was just like a big sledgehammer hit me upside the head. And Willie and I started talking about what we were going to do from that point on because it was impossible not to agree with her. And over the next, you know, this is the amazing thing. It really didn't take that long. Over the next three, four weeks maybe, we just rotated our parenting 180 degrees. And we became our parents our kids came home from school one day. There was no television in the house because neither of us had been raised with television. Where's the television, they said. It's gone. When's it going to be fixed? <laughs> Wasn't broken. We gave it to Goodwill. When are we getting our new one? We're not. We're not going to have a television. What? Everybody's got a television. 
I said, kids, it will be to your benefit from now on to never tell us what all the other kids have. (laughs) Because whatever all the other kids have, you ain't having it. (laughs) And don't tell us what they don't have either. Because what they don't have, you're going to get. Came home one day, this was like a week later, and there was a chart on the refrigerator. It said, your chores, Eric's chores, Amy's chores, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Six days a week, chores. What kind of chores? All of them. We handed all of the housework over to two children who'd never lifted a finger around the house in one day. The only things that weren't on the chores, they were 10 and 6, were ironing clothes, washing clothes, and cooking meals. And by the time they were 13, oh, and mowing the grass. And by the time they were 13, they were ironing clothes, washing clothes, cooking a meal a week for the family, the rule being you cannot open a can and heat up the contents and mowing the grass. And I remember them standing in front of that chore chart and just kind of staring at it. (laughs) And then staring at each other and staring at the chart again and staring at each other. And finally said, Eric said, well, what are you going to pay us? And I said, we're going to let you live here. (laughs) We're going to feed you and clothe you and provide necessary transportation, make sure you get really good medical care when you're ill, take you on vacations with with us most of the time. And we began using discipline that counted. Counted. Instead of silly things like three minutes of time out, we began using the kind of discipline our parents would have used. And it made all the difference in the world. All of the difference in the world. And this was an epiphany for me. It was the first of two huge epiphanies for me in my professional life. I began to realize, as a consequence of this, that everything, everything the professional community had been telling America's parents and was still telling America's parents about the raising of children was bogus. They were lies. They weren't intentional lies because these people did not know they were lying, but they weren't telling the truth. They were just babbling. That was the sledgehammer upside my head. The second was accepting Christ 12 years ago and realizing that it was all right there in the Bible, every single bit of it, all we needed. So a couple of years later, Eric is now in the fifth grade. 
And uh, we get a call about two weeks into the school year from one of his teachers, and I happen to be the person who picks up the call phone. And it's his uh, lead teacher. He now has three teachers. And his lead teacher proceeds to tell me that since the beginning of school, and by the way, he finished the fourth grade making straight A's. I mean, he, he just took off. And she proceeds to tell me that uh, she had justified her grade book that day and discovered that Eric had not completed a single assignment since the beginning of the school year. And she checked with the other two teachers and found out that he hadn't completed any assignments for them either. I said, what's he doing? Well, he's entertaining the class. He's very funny. Everybody loves him. I love him too. But all he does is entertain the class. He is very funny. He's a very funny person. And uh, she said, all he's doing is socializing and entertaining and not, not uh, doing his work. I said, well, thank you for the call. We will have a serious conversation with Eric this evening. Oh, she said, I would love to be a fly on the wall for that. Well, I don't think the conversation we had was anything near the conversation she expected us to have. You see, here's what had happened. One of the things that had happened back in January 1979 is that uh, Willie and I, after deciding what we were going to do, television, the chores, and we sat down with Eric and we said... uh, Eric, Mrs. Stewart says you're not going to the third to the fourth grade. And he this was his reaction. Oh, I'm not. I said, I didn't say you're not. I said, Mrs. Stewart says you're not. Well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is you have February, March, April, and May in order to prove to her that you're worthy of going to the fourth grade. And here's how, what you're going to have to do in order to do that. Mom and I believe you're capable of doing it. And to help you, here's what we're going to do. We are never again going to even ask you if you have homework. We are never again going to provide any help with homework. Not any. None. We are not going to answer questions concerning homework. We are not going to check your homework. We are never going to ask you, have you finished your homework? Have you done your homework? Let's see your homework. Your school responsibilities belong to you from now on completely, completely. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, how am I going to get to the fourth grade if you won't help me? And I said, well, you won't understand my answer until you're much older. But here's my answer. If we have to help you get to the fourth grade, then Mrs. Stewart is correct. You shouldn't be there. And three months later, he's on his way to the fourth grade. I want to tell you, folks, this totally turned my head around. Totally turned my head around. According to the psychological profession, he had ADHD, ODD, bipolar disorder, a learning disability, 
And here he is three months later completely cured, and we haven't done a thing to help him. This defied everything I had learned in graduate school and since graduate school. So that evening, now I'm fast-forwarding to the fifth grade, Willie and I sit down with Eric, and we said to Eric, uh, Eric, your teacher called, and here's what she said. Well, but, but, but Dad, I said, no, I don't want you to say anything. I, I've got something very short to say here. Um, you have seven weeks in order to solve, seven weeks left to solve this problem. You need to solve the problem. If you don't solve the problem, I'm going to get involved and you don't want me to get involved. Do you understand? Well, how will you get involved? I said, I have no idea. I'll figure that out when we get to that bridge. But I can assure you, you don't want me to get involved. Seven weeks. And during the seven weeks, nothing will change. I am never going to ask you if you have homework. I am never going to ask to see it. I am never going to ask for a report from your teachers. You're on your own. Solve the problem. You have any questions? No, sir. Good. Meeting's over. I'm absolutely sure that was not the meeting that teacher expected us to have. She expected us to have a meeting where we would talk about the importance of living up to your responsibilities and on and on and on. No, I think that meeting was less than three minutes. His midterm report came out a few weeks later, and I could see he was doing nothing to solve the problem. Absolutely nothing. And by the way, I'd call the school and I said, if Willie and I are going to do anything effective here, you have to give Eric the grades he deserves. You cannot give him charity grades because you like him. Okay. And I think between that phone call and his report card, I must have called the school three times and said, I'm just calling to remind you, you've got to give him the grades he deserves, or I can't do anything effective. Okay. And uh, I just signed that midterm report and left it on the counter, and Eric took it back to school the next day. Your great-grandmother would have called this giving the child all the rope he needed with which to hang himself. But parents don't do this anymore. They don't give their children the rope they need to hang themselves with. They run in there and they solve the problem. As soon as they see it begin to develop, they run in there and solve the problem. The child ends up learning very little, if anything at all, from his mistakes. So the report card comes out, and there were three D's on it, and I'm pretty convinced that at least two of them were charity grades. And there's a box on the report card that says, call us for a conference. And uh, I call, and we get in the next day, and three teachers are somewhat agitated. And they want us to do the homework assignment notebook system. Now, for the, I'm not going to go into this whole thing, but what it involves is the parent checking the child's homework every evening. And it's... it's enabling disguised as responsible adult behavior. And I'm not going to do it. I'm just not. And I very diplomatically said to these teachers, well, Willie and I are not 
ready to do anything of that sort right now. We've got a couple of aces up our sleeves. We're going to go home and try, and uh, we'd like an appointment with you in a month. And the teacher said, fine. They were a little dismayed that we wouldn't uh, go along with their recommendation. Willie and I go home, sit down with Eric. And I said, Eric, you had seven weeks to solve the problem, and you didn't solve it. And I told you if you didn't solve it, I was going to have to get involved. And now I'm involved. And my involvement takes the form of having to go to the school once a month to talk to your teachers about a problem I should never have to go to the school and talk with them about because it should not be a problem at all. So I'm going to the school. Your mother and I are going to the school in a month, and we're going to sit down with your teachers. And during that month, I'm not going to ask you if you have homework. I'm not going to ask to check it or see it. I'm not going to ask what it is. I'm not going to ask if you finished it. You're on your own. Go in in a month, sit down with your teachers, and I'm going to ask one question. It's going to sound like this. So, how's Eric doing? And Eric, three teachers have to say this. Oh, Eric's doing just fine. There's really no problems, nothing to discuss. Thanks for dropping by. And we have to hear that from three teachers, Eric. If one teacher says, well, you know, he's doing better, but there's still room for improvement, eh, wrong answer. If a teacher says, well, he's got a better attitude, eh, wrong answer. The only acceptable answer is, he's doing just great. There's nothing to discuss. Thanks for dropping by. And if we hear that from three teachers, you'll be allowed to come out of your room. <laughs> what? You heard me. What do you mean I'll be allowed to come out of my room? You'll be allowed to come out of your room. On uh, School days, Eric, here's your life. You wake up in the morning, do your chores upstairs, come downstairs, join us for breakfast, go to school. Socialize as much as you can there, son. <laughs> because that's the only place outside of church that you'll be seeing children unsupervised by us. Come home, do your chores, go to your room. And I'm not going to check you in your room to make sure you're doing your homework. I'm not going to do that. You do what you want to in your room. You're on your own with this, kid. You go to your room, you can come out of your room to do chores, use the bathroom, eat meals with family, and go places with us when we choose not to leave you at home by yourself. You'll be included in all family activities. <clears throat> on school nights, your bedtime is now 7 o'clock, and if you tell me at 7 o'clock that your homework isn't done, you're going to bed. On non-school days, you wake up in the morning, do your chores, come downstairs, join us for breakfast, go back to your room. You can come out of your room to do chores, eat meals with us, use the bathroom, and go places with us. And if there's no school the next day, you'll be able to stay up until 7 o'clock. Lights out. And in a month, if we get the wrong answer from one teacher, we'll do this another month. 
and you've got seven years left to live with us. And if you want to stay in your room for seven years, Eric, you let me tell you something. You'll be relieving us of three burdens. Burden number one, when you get to be 16, there will be no discussion of the C word. That'll save me a lot of money. Number two, we will never, ever have to worry about where you are, who you're with, or what you're doing. And number three, If you ever manage to graduate from high school, there'll be no discussion of the second C word either, because I am not sending somebody to college who can't figure out how to get out of his room. (laughs) And a month later, three teachers said, I don't know what you did. (laughs) But the very next day, he was a model student. Everything's fine. This is how you set disciplinary precedent. This is how you get rid of issues and you don't have to deal with them again. Eh, maybe. So Eric and I, and Eric and I had, a, you know, we had a wonderful times together. I'm a rock and roll addict, and I took Eric to see Bruce Springsteen and the Rolling Stones and Jethro Tull and the Kinks and all the bands that just inspired me when I was playing in bands in college. And, and uh, you know, we had wonderful times together, but he always was aware of the fact I wasn't his buddy. I was sharing parts of my life that were just really near and dear to me with him, but I was not his buddy. So we're driving down the road two years later, and he's now in the seventh grade, and he says, Dad, I need to tell you something, and I just don't know how to tell you. I just better blurt it out. I'm not going to get a very good grade in English this grading period, and maybe for the whole year if I have to stay with this teacher all year. I said, what's the problem? Well, Dad, that's the other thing. I just don't know how to tell you. But, Dad, she just doesn't like me. Uh, I turn in my best work. She marks all over it in red. I raise my hand in class to answer a question. She mocks me. Uh, Dad, she blames me for things I haven't done, um, criticizes me constantly in class. Dad, she just doesn't like me. There's nothing I can do to satisfy her. And, and Dad, I'm not going to get a very good grade from her. And, You just need to know that now so it doesn't come as a surprise when my report card comes out. Well, huh? How many kids are there in this class? Well, Dad, I don't know. Take a guess. Well, 30? 30. She doesn't like 30 kids? No, Dad, it's just me and one other kid. Really? Now that's funny. That is really funny. <laughs> Eric, I've told you before, you can't hoodoo the hoodoo man. <laughs> what are you talking about, Dad? I said, Eric, she likes 28 out of 30 kids. She just doesn't like two because they're making it 
Two kids are making it difficult for her to do the job she needs to do for 30 children. But but don't say anything. Don't say anything because if you do, I will call her and you'll be in more trouble. Then you're already in. And you're in a lot. You were trying to cover your tracks. You just laid them wide open. Yep. Dad? What? You're making me nervous. Why? Dad, you're not saying anything. Well, I was just thinking. I'm going to give you a memory exam. You remember the fifth grade? <laughs> the month? Dad, Dad, you, you, you can't put a seventh grader in his room for a month. Dad, you, you can do that to a fifth grader. I was just a little kid then. Dad, you can do that to a little kid. You can't do that to a seventh grader. You can't put a seventh grader in his room for a month. No, 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 man. No, 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 I would never do that. Three months. It's called parenting algebra. Fifth grade, one month. Sixth grade, two. Seventh grade, three. Three months, Dad, you can't put me. Yes, I can. And I will. You better get a B in her class. Or you're in your room for three months. Because we're not doing what we did in the fifth grade. We're never doing that again. <clears throat> and he got to be in her class. <laughs> I never did ask her how he got to be in her class. I'm not sure I wanted to know how he got to be in her class. <laughs> so sometimes, even though there is foolishness bound in their hearts, they are even in the midst of outbursts of foolishness, capable of making rational decisions. I've talked for much too long. Thanks for your patience, Bill. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for inviting me here, everybody. Uh, I've had a marvelous time. Hope to see you on the 19th of October. Thank you.